The last segment that I presented was called Inspiration of the Scriptures, uh, the Headship. And this is a follow-up on that. So this is part two. And I believe that we should pray together and ask God to bless us. Once again, we present this time to you, Father, in the blessed name of thy Son, in whom we believe that he is the author, the one that gave direction through the Spirit to inspire your holy prophets to write the counsels that we have, which have blessed our hearts and lives, and the lives of millions who have turned to thee through it. And now we pray for your spirit to guide in this presentation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This particular presentation is men's role in the new covenant. I think all of you are acquainted with the phrase new covenant. And the new covenant is important but before Jesus established a new covenant, there were several things that he had to do. First of all, it is interesting that when Jesus was doing his ministry, there were women who followed him and ministered unto him. In Mark 15, verse 40 and 41, it says, there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less and of Josie and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. So we know that there were many women. We don't know how many. We know the names of a few who were involved in following the Lord as he went from place to place, and uh, ministering unto him from their means. And it was Mary Magdalene whom after uh, the Lord had done his ministry and just before his crucifixion, wiped his feet with her hair and uh, doused them with sweet fragrance, preparing him for his burial. The Bible also tells us that besides these women, that they were men. And it says, after these things, in Luke 10, verse 1 and 17, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would go, come. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, I do want you to understand that from what I understand, the 70 were 70 men, just like the 12 men that were selected. And uh, it's interesting that there's a parallel between uh, Israel and the New Testament church. In Israel, there were 12 patriarchs. And in the New Testament, there were 12 disciples. In ancient Israel, there were 70 elders who Moses appointed to help him. And in the New Testament, there were 70 men who followed Christ as well. So there was 
12 and 70 in the Old Testament, and there are 12 and 70 in the New Testament. And what's interesting about all this is that it shows that our Lord has been consistent in the leading of his people throughout history. But it was time for him to put together the new covenant. As you know, it had been prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 that he would cause the sacrifices, at verse 27, and oblations to cease. He shall cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease. And the time was coming when he would have to do that. But for this momentous occasion, when he would set up the new covenant, neither women nor the 70 disciples were included in the ceremony nor did they participate in the establishment of the New Testament. The only ones permitted into the actual Lord's Supper were the twelve disciples. And when the evening was come, he sat down with how many? With twelve. In Matthew 26 and verse 20. And in Mark 20, verse 17, it says, And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. So this was not an inclusive meeting. This was an ex exclusive meeting. Everybody except the 12 disciples were included. Everybody was excluded except the 12 disciples who were included in the Last Supper that the Savior had before he established the New Covenant. So when Christ established the New Covenant, no women were present in the upper room, nor the 70 disciples that followed him. In the book of Luke 22 and verse 30, it says, When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, he also shall sit upon 12 thrones. Ye also shall sit in 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. This is what Jesus said to the 12 disciples prior to his glory. Then in Luke 22, verse 30, at the supper, he says this, uh, this position was also reinstated or restated to the apostles in Luke 22, 30. And uh, he told them that you shall sit on 12 thrones and judge Israel. So it's, it's interesting then that the ones that he promised would sit on 12 thrones before the Lord's Supper and the ones that he promised at the Lord's Supper that they would sit in 12 thrones were the only ones that were permitted to participate in this very, very important gathering that was to bring a closure to the old system of sacrifices and bring an opening to the new system that Christ was to uh, put into place. And the Scripture says, and as they, the twelve disciples, did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank all of it. They drank of it. And he said unto them, This is the blood of my, of the New Testament, which is shed for many. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
when they had sung us a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. I have to confess to you that every time I drink grape juice, I'm reminded of the statement that Jesus made. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. Yes, madam. What's that? Is this also in reference to women elders as well? In the Bible, there never existed women elders. That is a new coin term. It's an oxymoron. Because elder is a male term and only applies to men in the entire Bible. Elder never applied to women. It's just like calling women today fathers and calling men today mothers. It's, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. It is simply a new term that has been invented, a new phrase. But biblically speaking, you will never find a woman elder. Thank you for the question. Verily I say unto you then, Jesus said, I will not drink of the vine. So Jesus was ready to establish a new covenant, a new testament, and uh, he, uh, he invited only those who he deemed to be important enough to include because they were to carry forward the work that Jesus was about ready to cease doing as he went to heaven. So he was entrusting to the disciples the new covenant. And it was through the disciples that we know about the new covenant. Had the Spirit of God never inspired the apostles to write about the new covenant, you and I would know absolutely nothing about what Jesus established. The only way we know is because Jesus entrusted the, these men with the sacred responsibility of sharing with the world what we now know as the New Covenant or the New Testament. Now, what's important is to remember this, that Jesus has been consistent. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and for how long? Forever. Jesus consistently recognized the male role because he is the creator, he's the one that made man to begin with, therefore he has always consistently held up the role of men as well as the role of women. And by the way, I should tell you this, that the only title in the Old Testament in reference to spiritual women that you'll find is mothers of Israel. Deborah, or Deborah, some people pronounce it, is herself called a mother of Israel. There are some people who are trying to twist it and say that Deborah was the leader of Israel. No, it was not Deborah the leader of Israel. It was the king who was the leader of Israel. Deborah was a prophetess that God used to encourage the king to go and do what he was supposed to do. But she was not the leader. She was a prophetess, just like Samuel. Samuel instructed Saul what to do. But Saul was, was the king. He was the leader, not Samuel. Is that clear? And so Deborah was not the leader of Israel. She was a mother of Israel. And if you type the word mother of Israel, you'll find the women that were considered to be mothers of Israel because the men were considered to be fathers of Israel. So you never call the mothers fathers. And you never call the fathers mothers. That would have been considered 
a complete blasphemous thing to do against a father or against a mother. Mothers were respected and fathers were respected because they had their respective roles. Is that clear? So, Jesus is consistent with his recognition of men's roles. Now, the 12 apostles then understood the leadership role that was entrusted to them. For example, the Bible says in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 to 4, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice that the apostles understood their sacred responsibility that God had placed upon them to be faithfully carrying forth the work of God. And when the church grew and it began to be uh, difficult for them to carry forth the, the work of ministering to the widows, etc., and the Greeks began to complain that only the Jewish ladies were being taken care of, the disciples said, look, we shouldn't be doing this anyway. You select seven what? Seven men. Again, who did they understand should be leading out? The men. You select seven men full of the Holy Ghost and uh, give them the task of taking care of that. And we know that some of those men uh, became great, great uh, missionaries for God. We understand Philip, who went and uh, witnessed, of course, to the Ethiopian eunuch who, by the way, was not some pagan. The Bible says he was a worshiper in Jerusalem and was reading the Scriptures. This man was a Jewish believer who was on his way back to Ethiopia to do the business of the king. Sometimes people misuse that and just to say, well, you can baptize anybody anytime because the Ethiopian eunuch never got a Bible study and he was baptized. They forget that you cannot be of Jewish faith and keep Sunday. If he came from Jerusalem worshiping, what day was he worshiping on? Sabbath. So he was a Sabbath keeper. Did he believe in the Bible? Absolutely. He was reading through the book of Isaiah. Was this man a devout man? Absolutely. Did he understand that Jesus is the Messiah? No. And that's why Philip enlightened him about the Christ. And when he understood the Christ, it's interesting that he himself understood and knew what baptism was all about because he himself said there's much water here what hinders me then to be baptized and peter said if you believe with all your heart you may so they went into the water baptized him and that man went his way and uh, it is believed that because of him the ethiopians actually kept the sabbath from century to century to century so notice then that the disciples understood the sacred responsibility that Christ had placed upon them, and they were obedient to it. Then there came a time to substitute or to replace the fallen one who had betrayed Christ. There were 120 believers up in that room. Do you remember? In the book of Acts chapter 1, you can read it from verse 13 and on, you will see that there were 120 believers. And it mentions that there were men and women up there. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus. There were Mary Magdalene and other women who were up there. Um, and when the Holy Ghost came upon Peter, it was this Peter who said, we need to do something. We need to conduct a constituency meeting, something that church members don't like these days. When it comes to the end of the year, what do you have to do? You have to select what? Elders. And sometimes we think, well, we, you know, we don't want to do that. We hate this process. But it's a process that was established by the Lord himself. By who? By the Lord himself. And so they took time to take care of the church. And by the way, the disciples were not just kneeling on their knees for the 10 days. In the book of Luke and Mark, it says that they were in the temple witnessing daily. They were testifying to God. They were not just waiting idly, praying on their knees all the time. They were actually witnessing. But because they could not succeed and break through to the Jews, they sensed that they needed more power in their lives. And they began to search their hearts to make sure that there was nothing that would stand between them and what God had promised. So that when they came to the place, when they were finally in harmony with what God wanted, when they were sitting, Acts chapter 2, verse 2 says, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So the Spirit of God did not come upon them when they were kneeling. It came upon them when they were what? Sitting. And we're told that the Spirit of God in the last days will come upon the church as the people are sitting, and some will be receiving the Spirit of God and some will not. So by all means, make sure that you're in the camp that does. What do you say? You don't want to be passed by. And so, out of 120, they decided that the Spirit of God led them to make a choice. And out of all the women, you know, they could have thought of Mary Magdalene, they could have thought of Jesus' mother, and who would have argued with, any, with uh, the disciples? They just said, well, we think the mother of, of the Lord should be one of the replacements. No, the Spirit of God led them to two males. Why? Because God had established a covenant. A what? Christ had established a covenant. And he bequeathed all that he was doing unto his disciples. And they understood quite well what Jesus intended. And so, the Bible does not say that women cannot be pastors. And by the way, this is an argument that some people use. How many of you have heard that? The Bible does not say that, you can, that women can't be pastors. Well, unfortunately, that is a sad statement. That is a what? A sad statement. No Christian should use the argument that God does not say, therefore it's okay. How many Christians? No Christian should use the argument that because God does not say you cannot do it, it is okay to do it. It's, a, it's, it's a, a bad direction to go. In the scriptures, God uses what is called tacit or sub-audition language. Now, how many of you have heard of sub-audition? Have you heard of that word before? Well, I speak Spanish and I've heard it. <laughs> what about tacit? How many of you have heard of the word tacit? You have not heard of the word tacit. You haven't. Well, let me explain what it is. Here's what it is. It is the act of understanding something that is what? Implied but not overly stated. 
the Bible. God oftentimes uses tacit or subaudition language so that he doesn't have to lay out all that you have to do. He just simply tells you what you shouldn't do, and that should let you know that that statement automatically eliminates anything else. It is understood. It is what? Let me give you some examples. My brother and his conference president there and some other members came to visit me in Guam, and they wanted something to do. So my brother noticed that my house needed painting. So he decided they wanted to paint it. Now, I had to take a trip. So I said, I want the house to be painted with a gray tan color, okay? What did I say? I wanted painted with a gray tan color. Now, suppose when I came back, I found the house painted in blue or in brown or in yellow or red. Do you think that I had to tell my brother, now, Gene, by the way, he's a retired pastor in Florida, if I had said, now, Gene, I don't want you to paint my house in beige or blue or, blue or red or black or brown or yellow or pink. Did I need to say all that? No. All I had to say is, I want you to paint it in gray tan, period. And that statement eliminated everything else. Do you understand what I'm saying? So... When God makes explicit statements, affirmative statements, it is to exclude anything else. Let me give you some examples. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now tell me something. How many days did God say are holy? How many? One. How do you know that? Because there's an explicit affirmative command. Six days shall not labor, and the seventh day is the day of rest. Now, there are people who use the argument, God did not say that you cannot worship on Sunday. And you will not find it any place in the Bible that God says you cannot worship on Sunday. And people who use that argument are correct. There is no place in the Scriptures that says you cannot worship on Sunday or on Friday or on any other day. What's interesting, however, is this, that in the actual Greek, when it uses the word first day of the week, in the Greek, it actually, the language is the first of the Sabbath. The second day is called the second of the Sabbath. The third is called the third of the Sabbath. The fourth of the Sabbath, the fifth of the Sabbath, and the sixth of the Sabbath. But when you translate it in English, it just simply uses the, the term Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Sunday, etc. Do you understand? But in the actual Bible, everything is from the reference of the Sabbath. The point of reference is the Sabbath. So a Jew knew that it was the first of the Sabbath, which means the first day after the Sabbath, or the second of the Sabbath, etc. Do you understand? 
So when God says the Sabbath, it completely eliminated any other alternative or any other option. God did not have to say, now wait a minute, uh, you need to worship me, uh, but don't worship me on Sunday. No, 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 neither on Monday. No, no. No, he didn't have to do that. All he had to do is say, worship me on the seventh day, period. And by that statement, it completely eliminates any other alternative. Did you hear that? Yes? Remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. The implied prohibition is obvious. That is, that it is not to be any other day other than the seventh day. The same thing with creation. God said that he created the, the world in how many days? Six days. By that affirmative statement, it completely eliminates any other possibility. And for people to say that one day equals a thousand years is not supported in the Scriptures. In other words, you and I don't live a thousand years. Therefore, we could never keep a thousand-year Sabbath. When Jesus comes, of course, we'll be able to keep thousands of Sabbaths because we'll live more than a thousand years. We'll live forever. What do you say? But until then, you and I are limited. And we only live so long. Therefore, God says, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Period. He doesn't say, now wait a minute. Uh, I want you to understand, I didn't make the earth in a thousand years. No, I didn't make the earth in a million years. No, I didn't make the earth in 999 days. He simply says, I made the earth in six days. Period. Suppose I ask my son, I say, now, son, I want you to go to the right-hand corner of the backyard of my house, and I want you to dig a hole because I want to put in a, an apple tree there. He said, okay, Dad, I'll take care of it. Well, the next day I come, and I'm looking for the hole. It's not there. And I say, Tim, what happened? Oh, Dad, I made the hole. I said, but it's not there. Oh, yes, it is. And where is it? I decided to put it up in the front of the house. No question. Did he do what I asked him to do? What did he do? He did his own thing. My statement eliminated anything else. Do you understand? So the Bible uses what kind of language? Tacit or subaudition language. God does that. For example, one day I was in a store and a lady came in looking for something in a Sears store. And I was dressed with a shirt and tie. So I said, Madam, you look like you're looking for something. Oh, yes, I can't find it. Oh, I, what is it? She told me. I said, I know where it is. Come right with me. I took her right there. She said, oh, this company should be proud of having somebody like you work for them. And I said, no, Madam, I don't work here. She said, you don't work here? I said, no. I said, I'm a Christian. I love to help people. You're a Christian? Yes. Then she said, tell me, why is your God so negative? I said, negative? What do you mean? It's do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. And I said, that's not negative, that's positive. She said, what do you mean? Well, I, all I need to know is what I shouldn't do, and then I have the liberty to do everything else that I can do. To me, it's positive. God is telling me 
that I'm capable of not doing something. So I am capable of not killing. I am capable of not stealing. I am capable of not committing adultery. Why? Because God said don't do it. And if God says don't do it, it means that I am able not to do it. What do you say? But it doesn't limit me from everything else that I can do. Can you say amen to that? And so she was surprised. It turned out that she was a Persian or somebody from Iran who didn't understand the beauty of the Ten Commandments, that they're actually a promise. All of them are promises to God's children. So God uses what kind of language? So God says the seventh day is holy. Many say every day is holy. Who's right? In the Bible, God made how many women for man? One woman. God made one woman for the first man. By implication. By what? This implied, in other words, that God only wanted how many wives for one man? One wife. Okay. So by so doing, it implied that man should practice monogamy. Should only have one wife. Yet polygamy was and still being practiced. Question is why? Because some particular religious persuasions assert that there is no place where God explicitly forbids it. There's no language in the Bible that says you cannot have two wives or three wives or four wives. Anybody here can find that text for me. Please let me know. Nobody. It doesn't exist. But God simply says, you shall not commit what? Adultery. And because people got it all muddied up, Jesus finally came and said, if you lust after a woman in your mind, you've already committed adultery. That statement simply omits any other alternative than what God intended. What do you say? Is that clear? So for people to say, God didn't say that a woman can't be a pastor. Why did he have to say that? Because he did make the clear statement that only men were to be priests. In the Old Testament, notice what it says. In the book of Jeremiah 28, verse 3, uh, two, pardon, 2, verse 8, and 3, verse 15. And in the New Testament, there were elders or pastors serving as ministers or pastors. And that's Ephesians 4, 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and 2, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22, Titus verse 1, verse 7, and Titus verse 3, verse 15. As proof. Now, notice what God said. In Exodus 28, 1. And take thou unto thee who? Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Even who? Now that you know there's something interesting. He said, I want you to take Aaron your brother. And then he says, even Aaron. Why did God say that? There'd be no question whom God was explicitly and implicitly declaring to be the priest for Israel. He says, uh, he should minister unto me, even Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. 
So he was explicit or implicit in both cases. Then it says, neither shall the priest, the Levites want a what? A man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. Jeremiah 33, verse 18. Notice it doesn't say, neither shall the priest, the Levites want a woman. What does it say? What does the word want mean in this particular? It means lacking. What does it mean? To have wants means to lack. Okay? So it says, neither shall the priest, the Levites, lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to kindle meat offerings and to do sacrifice continually. So God established the covenant with Moses, and in that covenant, God established a priesthood. Do you see that? God established a covenant, and in that covenant, he established a priesthood. And that priesthood was male-directed. It was never to be female-directed. That's in the old covenant. In the new covenant, uh, the word pastors is found. And oftentimes, the word minister or ministry is, is confused. The word minister, of course, when Aaron was ordained as a minister, uh, as a priest, it said, he shall minister unto me. But the word the minister appears with Joshua. It says that Joshua uh, was Moses' minister. Do you see that? Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. Now, sometimes people get confused with ministry and minister. A minister should do ministry. But ministry is not only limited to ministers. Ministry simply means to serve. What does it mean? To serve. And God said about his pastors that they were supposed to be what? Servants. So a minister serves. We are not here to be uh, kings over God's people. We're here to serve God's people. That's the ministry, okay? So the first time the word minister appears in the Bible is in the book of Exodus. In the King James Version, then, this word is found how many times? 100 occurrences in 98 verses in the Old and New Testament. All except for how many? For two, which is Ephesians 4, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 4, which use the word in reference to contributing. They ministered with their means have to do with the male gender either being a minister or doing what? Ministry. When Jesus said to the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions who were not so I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is tacit language. What is it? Tacit language. What does this mean? Well, it simply means this. By this statement, Jesus comforted the disciples with the clear implication that at the second advent and not at death, they would be united with their Lord. Is that clear? This is tacit language. I am going home and I'm coming back to take you with me. So when are you going to be with me when I come and get you, period? No other time. 
Do you understand? Therefore, the apostles and the disciples are not in heaven with whom? With Jesus. Where are they? They're waiting where? Down here. Until when? Until the word of Christ is fulfilled. He promised them, I'm coming back to do what? To take you. So where would they be? They would be down here waiting for the master. The system of sacrifices of meeting is antitype. Christ is about to go to the cross and by his death do away with the ceremonial system that pointed to his atonement for the sins of the world. So the covenant was about ready to be put into place, the new covenant. Before the new covenant could be put into place, any changes that had to be uh, implemented had to be done prior to the death of Christ. Did you hear what I said? Any changes had to be implemented before the death of Christ. How do we know that? In this crucial hour of transition from the old covenant to the new, he must make it absolutely clear that the old system of types and shadows will be done away with and replaced. Now, what's amazing is this. It is important to take special note that there is no record of Christ stating that he was replacing the sacrificing of animals with the emblems of his body. Did you hear what I said? There's no statement where Jesus said, okay, uh, I'm going to tell you now that the old system, I'm going to do away with that. I'm getting rid of the sacrifices and all that, so you won't have to follow that anymore. There's no statement recorded that way. What is recorded is just a positive affirmation of what he was going to do and by it implying that everything else should not be done. Here's what it said. By simply implementing this new ceremony called the Lord's Supper of Communion, the great majority of the Christian world has accepted the implied displacement of the system of sacrifices. Can you see what we're dealing with here? Because God does not necessarily want to have to spell out everything, God simply tells you what you need to know so that it makes it easy for you to follow. What do you say? And many times he simply just implies. What does he do? He simply just implies. This do. And when he says this do, what does that mean? That you can't do. But he doesn't say what you don't have to do. He simply says that which you have to do. This do and thou shalt live. What does that mean? It means don't do anything else. Do this. So I'm thankful that our Savior is simple. There are many things in the Bible that are, com you know, complex in reference to if we were to use today's language. But in the Bible, it's very simple. I like to, I, I love science, and I like to find scientific things in the Bible. And so I was speaking to a group of doctors uh, two weeks ago, and I was explaining to them that in the Bible, there are many things that God reveals that happened before people even understood what he was talking about. So I said, for example, he put Adam into a deep sleep. And so I said to the doctors, what do you have to do with a person before you do surgery? Well, you have to do something called what? Anesthesiology, right? You have to anesthetize somebody. Well, the Bible doesn't use that big word. The Bible simply says, he put him into a deep sleep. Now, a child can understand that, right? 
If you say, well, you got to use anesthetics. Well, they may not understand it, but he said a deep sleep. And then I said, and then he opened up the side, and the nurse said, incision. And then he closed up the side, and, he, and she said, suture. But he pulled out the bone, and she said, extraction. So the nurse was using all the medical terms that I was using from the Bible to show that the Bible actually is far advanced to science, all right? But God uses simple language that even a child can understand how to get to the kingdom. What do you say? All right, so notice then that at this important time, the Lord is making it simple. He is implementing. What is he doing? He spends no time at telling the disciples all the things that he's doing away with. He's simply implementing a service that is to completely do away with the other. He sealed the new covenant with his blood. He implemented what he wanted. And the Bible says where a testament is, which means a will or a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. In other words, my mother-in-law passed away. Before she passed away, she had a will, which is a testament. But that testament could always be changed while she was still alive. But once she died, then what? Then you cannot change that will. It is set, unless the lawyers get involved with it, and then they uh, come up with all sorts of interesting things to get as much money as they can out of the testament. But if it's plain and simple, and no one contests the testament, then it says what it says, and it cannot be changed, right? So what it's telling you is this. Prior to Christ's death, he instituted the changes that he needed to institute and established a New Testament church with the 12 disciples as their founders or as the, the, the pillars of that church and then sealed that with his blood. Therefore, the emblems that he uses are emblems that were in the Testament. And so, we see the consistencies then that Jesus sealed the covenant, putting men in charge of that covenant to make sure that it was carried forth and adhered to with the understanding of all that Jesus wanted them to teach to the people concerning his teachings. And then it says, Thou therefore, my son Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So the disciples followed the dictates of their Savior. Therefore, in the New Testament, there are no women pastors. In the book of Revelation, the last revelation given to us, we find 24, what are they called? Elders. We don't know who they are. We believe that they were resurrected on the day when Jesus died because it says the graves were open and many of the saints came up out of the graves. And 
but God does not mention names. He could have said Moses is there. He could have said Enoch is there and Elijah is there. He could have mentioned those three. But I want you to take note of something interesting, that even though the Bible reveals three specific people who are in the kingdom, how many of those people are mentioned as saints in the Catholic Church? None. The ones that God does say are saints in heaven are completely omitted. But God does not make the mention because the tendency of mankind is to worship things. And God doesn't want us to worship people. Worship God, and them only shall thou serve. Well, listen, conclusion. In Exodus 19.6, the Bible says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now notice that God told Moses what to tell the children of Israel. That they should, should be a holy nation. And what else? A kingdom of priests. A what? A kingdom of priests. Then Peter, understanding what God stated, rephrased and put into his day the same commendation that God had given to the people of Israel. Because you remember that the new covenant established the New Testament church, and they needed the authority from heaven. And in order for them to have the authority of heaven, they had to be declared to be the new church of God. The Hebrew church or the Jewish church was no longer to be considered as God's main people. But the gospel was to go to the world. And everyone who became a believer became part of that new church. And so that church needed the authority that God had given the Old Testament church, that it was the church of God. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, it, it sets a church in the wilderness. And so, here's this new church that crops up. And God had to give an official stamp of approval to that church. And so Peter then says, you are a chosen what? Generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Just like in the Old Testament, the holy nation was a kingdom of priests. God intended that the Testament church, the New Testament church, likewise should be a holy nation. With, rather than having many priests, they would have one priest. And who is that? It is Jesus Christ. Now, Men clearly in the Bible have a role. And this does not mean that women are sidestepped. It just simply means that God has an established order by which he has guided his church. And today, God still is in charge of his church. What do you say? And there may be many things that crop in or creep into the church, but it does not remove the reality that it is God's church. In my uh, dealings with this particular subject, um, I have come across things that just kind of shock me because people are trying to find something in the Scriptures that's not there. For example, I had a theologian tell me that 
that uh, Rachel was a pastor in the Bible. And I said, how do you come up with that conclusion? Well, he said, well, it uses the word that she was a shepherd. And the term shepherd is a masculine term. Therefore, Rachel was a pastor. I have to, con I have to confess to you that when I heard that from that theologian, I thought something was going wrong with his mind. Because to suggest that Rachel was a shepherd would also have to suggest that all those who were called shepherds in the Bible, like uh, uh, shepherds in the Old Testament who were dealing uh, unkindly with the girls that were having problems and Moses had to push them away. That means that those men were shepherds or pastors. It means that all the boys of uh, Jacob were pastors. And I don't think any of you would like to have those kind of pastors today. They were not necessarily good boys until finally they became converted, what do you say? But prior to that, when Joseph went to speak to Pharaoh, he said, my father and my brethren are shepherds. So that means that these were pastors. Then you have pastors all across the Bible that are heathen, etc., but they are pastors. So to me, to use the term that Rachel was a shepherd. The problem is that some words never have a feminine uh, gender to it. Some words only have a masculine gender to it. For example, the word soldier. What do you call a woman who's a soldier? You call her a soldier. You don't call her a soldier rather, correct? It is a masculine term. But does that, term, does that make that woman a soldier in terms of a male? No. There are terms, police. How do, you, how do you change the word police into a feminine gender? It doesn't exist. There are some things that are just masculine and, 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 and gender, but they can be used in different applications. Is that true? So there are some arguments that are brought up that just doesn't seem to make to me any sense to support women being pastors in the Bible. I have found none. The good news is this, that we have a Bible. God gave us this word to help us to know what is truth. And while there are people who may either innocently, naively, ignorantly, or intentionally mistranslate the Bible, God has made it so that it could be at your reach. You could read it for yourself and know a thus saith the Lord. What do you say? God has established a church, and that church has principles. God gave authority to the church. There's some people who say, well, look, uh, God didn't want a king, but the people did, so God gave them a king. So why don't we do the same with the women? Well, it says in the book of Hosea that God gave him a king in his anger. In what? In his anger. So why would anyone today desire to make God angry by doing something that he does not desire? I do not understand that kind of thinking, do you? Why tempt God when he says absolutely that he did not desire that king 
And he did it because they insisted on it. And uh, he said to, to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. God makes it plain and, and, and clear that that move was a rejection of him. So for us to use that argument and to put a woman into a pastoral role just to say that because God allowed it in the Old Testament, then we should allow things in the New Testament is not good logic nor wisdom. We ought not to repeat the mistakes of the people of old days. What do you say? The Scripture says that these things are written for our admonition, for our learning, and for our hope. The good thing about it is that irrespective of what people say or do, God still has given us the Word. And you can stand on it because He says, I change not. You can believe in it. You can trust in it. And one of the most difficult things on earth today is the complete trying to alter what God says just to be what is called politically correct. And I believe, friends, that the only politically correct thing you can do, if you're going to use that in the correct term, is to do that which is right. And the Bible makes it plain. I honor women. I train women all the time. We are told that women can win more souls than men can. Sorry, brethren. That's a reality. Because God made women with special instincts that men don't seem to have. Is that true? When you think of women, you think, who has intuition, mom or dad? Or why did you say mom? Men, do you agree with that? How many of you men agree with that, that mom has intuition? How many of you men don't agree with that? Come up to me and let me talk to you. <laughs> but the reality is that God has given women special skills so that they can sniff out what the kids are up to before they do it. What do you say? They need that ability because all of us men are off working and sometimes distracted. And the women are the ones that have to be after the kids all the time. And so God has given them ability that we do not have. And we should use those abilities to advance the kingdom, what do you say? But it doesn't mean that we begin to do something that the Bible does not permit. I'm glad that God makes it plain. There's a special role for the women and a special role for the, the men. I'm glad, brethren, that I don't have to bear children. What do you say? I hear the men now saying amen. Yeah, I'm glad for that. But I'm also glad that God did provide a way that children can be born. I now have five grandchildren. And my wife told my daughter, if I knew the grandkids were so great, I would have had them first. But the reality is that God has created a process and he has ordained the church and he has ordained principles in this church. And as Christians, we need to do all that we can to come into harmony with that which God has ordained for us as individuals, for us as roles in the church, and for us as people who are expected to be citizens in a kingdom that is filled with order. God wants all of us to come into harmony with his principles. What do you say? And when we do, we find safety and we find 
comfort and we find hope. Now, I don't know how far this thing will reach. I'm talking about women ordination. I know the General Conference voted against it. But I know that money has been laid aside, about $650,000 have been laid aside to make sure that 250 more women could be pastors. I know that. So I don't know how far this thing will stretch. I do know this, that sooner or later, sooner or later, it'll have to come back to what God says. And while this process is going, remember this. I'm going to share this with you. It is clear that we're told that God permits apostasy to try the hearts of his people. God permitted it in ancient Israel. Jesus allowed Judas. And in the New Testament, we find apostasy. God allows apostasy. That does not make the church Babylon. Did you hear what I said? There may be things that go wrong, but we need to remain faithful to what we know to be true. As I said to you the other day, when I'm flying and I do a lot of flying, and the pilot comes over the speaker to tell us there's turbulence, he doesn't say jump out the window. He says tighten the seatbelt. And if there's ever a time when you and I need to tighten our seatbelt, it is today. Because what's being attacked is not women. What's being attacked is what? The Word of God. And we need to stand up for what we believe to be true. That's why it says that we ought to have a reason or an answer for the faith that is within us. And where do you find that faith? In the thus saith the Lord. We say amen to that. And today, I want to recommit myself as a Christian to the standards that the holy book of God has ordained for me. What about you? How many of you would like to stand to that and say, by God's grace, I want to remain true to that which the Bible reveals and which the Bible implies not to do. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the new covenant that Jesus sealed with his own blood. We know that all that he wanted to implement, he did before his death. And we know that all that he wanted to change, he changed just simply by in implementing that which he wanted. The same happened in the Old Testament. So we know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we stand today in the, uh, renewing our covenant with you that we will be true and faithful to you and to thy holy word until you appear. Keep us true to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.